So good to be with you today, church. We're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. And so let's just jump right in today and read the first three verses. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. It says this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So what's happening here? What's happening here is that Jesus is headed closer and closer to the cross where he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's headed to Jerusalem where he's going to be delivered over to the religious leaders of the day who are going to condemn him to death. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed by both Jews and Gentiles. And of course, he has told his disciples all of this before. But for the third time here, for the third time, he is reminding them once again, he's preparing them for the cross. That soon, it's going to look like everything is falling apart that soon everything is going to seem to be going wrong and falling apart. He's preparing them that even though it's going to feel like everything is going wrong, and that his plan has been thwarted and that his kingdom has been defeated, but, but the third day is coming. And on that third day, he's going to rise from the dead. He's teaching them. He's been preparing them that there's going to be a victory that's won, that there's going to be glory that's displayed, that there's going to be greatness that can be accomplished in his kingdom. But the path, but the path to getting there is utterly different than the path that the world would choose. That victory will be won by the king and his kingdom but that it's going to be one through weakness and serving and not through domineering and lording power over people, that it's going to be one through forgiving, not in condemning and subjugating people, that glory will be displayed in the kingdom of God, but that it's going to be, at least for now, at least for now, be displayed through tears and through suffering and even death rather than through health and wealth and prosperity, that it's going to be displayed through the generosity of giving, not through the rich young rulers hoarding. That greatness can be accomplished in God's kingdom, but that the path to true greatness is up. It's not up, but it's down. That true greatness is accomplished in the humility of serving others and not in the pride of demanding that we be served by others. Rather than the laborers in the field who begrudged their master's generosity and thought that God's kindness was wages to be earned rather than grace to be received. All of this we've been looking at together in the, in the past weeks as Jesus was preparing his, his disciples for the cross by teaching them the nature of his upside down, otherworldly kingdom. But the disciples here, they're still not getting it. Literally, right after, 
Literally, right after Jesus had just told them that he's going to the cross to suffer, to die, James and John get their mother, get their mother to request something from Jesus, to get their mommy involved, you know? It's funny as that is. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So what's happening? Luke, in his account, gives the detail that a dispute had risen among the disciples. Jesus kept talking about this kingdom of his, and the good news is that the disciples believed him that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. So what was the argument about? The argument was about who was going to be greatest in this kingdom. The argument was about who was going to be first and who was going to hold the highest positions and who was going to sit where in this kingdom. Think about this, church. Is this a relevant word for us today? Jesus had just said that for the third time that he's going to Jerusalem to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified. And what are his disciples doing? They're arguing. They're arguing among themselves. There's some really significant things happening, right? God is doing some serious things, but the disciples, what are they doing? They're arguing, getting so mad at each other. That doesn't sound like the church at all, does it? So why are they, some of the disciples may be thinking, yeah, 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 the cross. Yeah, you gotta go do that, but what about me? You have to die, and that's sad, but you're saying you're going to rise from the dead and everything's going to be okay, right? So when you're all done with that cross business, in your kingdom, when it's established, am I going to be in a position of power and prestige? They're saying, okay, you got to go do all that, but what about me? Or maybe for others, it wasn't that flippant. Maybe the idea of Jesus going to the cross terrified them. Maybe the idea of Jesus dying had them so terrified, such in panic, that they were that their disputing was more driven by worry and anxiety and panic. Perhaps they too were asking, what about me? But maybe something else was motivating their questioning. Perhaps they were asking, okay, they're, they're gonna kill you, Jesus. They're gonna kill you, Jesus, but we're gonna be okay, right? You're still going to find a way to protect us and provide for us, right? But regardless of what motivated their disputes, the point is that while Jesus had on his mind, had his mind set on God and obeying his will to the point of death, even death on a cross, the disciples had on their minds, they set their minds on themselves. They had their minds either on self-glory, will I get more power and prestige, or self-preservation, Will I be protected and provided for? 
in the middle of God orchestrating and accomplishing something on a global, eternal scale, in the middle of Jesus being so God-focused and others-focused, all the disciples could be were so self-focused. All they could think was, but what about me? So what about us, church? In the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of all the political turmoil and the racial strife in the middle of everything looking like it's falling apart. But perhaps God's in the middle of it all, orchestrating and wanting to accomplish something incredible through his people. But what's on our minds? What are we grasping at in the midst of all that God is doing in this world? Because make no mistake, he's still in charge. He's still working. Are we going after self-glory in the midst of it all? Are we saying, yeah, 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 terrible things are happening and it's sad, but what about me? What, how can I get more? How can I get more money? How can I get more power and prestige? How can I get more applause in this world? How can I get the seed of power and prestige? Or are we driven to self-preservation? Are we in anxiety and worry thinking, oh man, things are getting bad. It's getting real bad. How can I protect myself? How can I defend my, ex my freedoms and my rights? How can I shield and insulate me and my family from experiencing any sort of suffering? What can I do to make sure we don't face uncertainties and hardships in this life? What are we going for? What are we grasping for? Self-glory? Self-preservation? And what is Jesus' response to all of this? All of our grasping for self-glory, all of our desperation for self-preservation. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does Jesus respond? He responds by first giving them a call to serve, a call to serve. What's the remedy for being self-focused? A call to serve, a call to be others-focused. First, a call to serve. Whoever would be great among you, he says, must be your Servant, And whoever would be first among you, he says, must be your slave. Jesus starts by contrasting the difference between worldly greatness and kingdom greatness. He says in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Jesus is saying in this world, the greater your rank, the more you can lord it over people. The greater your position, the greater your self-glory. Jesus is saying, in this world, the more money you have, the higher your profile and the more power you have, the greater your ability to wield that authority and power to ensure for yourself self-preservation, self-protection. Life where we have all the self-glory, a life where we have all the self-preservation. Well, that would be great, right? That would be greatness, wouldn't it? But Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, that's not how we do it. That's not true greatness. 
He's saying, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, it shall not be so among you. Jesus is saying, you don't yet understand my kingdom because the kingdom I'm establishing right now is first going to be a kingdom of humiliation, a kingdom of suffering, a kingdom of tears and crucifixion. And then, and then there will come the triumph and glory and the joy of the resurrection. He's saying that in his kingdom, greatness will be measured not by how much you have, but how much you're willing to lay down. He's saying in God's kingdom, greatness is measured not by how many people you got to serve you, but how many people you got to serve. Listen, we all love being served, don't we? We all want to be served well. We want to be served quick. We want to be served right. We want to, not only that, we want to be served joyfully. We want them to be happy about it. <laughs> That's why we all go to Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> we all love being served, but how many of us love serving? Serving, serving well, serving quick, serving right, serving joyfully is how Jesus is going to measure our greatness in his kingdom. And so if that's the definition of greatness, let me ask you, church, are you great? If that's how Jesus is saying greatness is measured in his kingdom, are you great? Or do you even want to be great in that way? Are we seeking the kind of greatness that says, look at me, admire me, serve me? Or are we pursuing a greatness that says, me? Who cares about me? What about you? A greatness that considers others more significant than ourselves. Are we pursuing a worldly greatness that says your life for mine or a kingdom greatness that says my life for yours? Jesus says the seat to my right and the seat to my left. Oh, you don't know what you're asking for. I have an entirely different definition of greatness. He says in verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And what cup is that? It's the cup of horror. It's the cup of suffering and death. It's the cup that Jesus wrestled with in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed, as he sweat drops of blood, saying, Father, is there any other way? If there's any other way, will you let this cup pass from me? And so what Jesus is saying is that our proximity to him, to his right, to his left, our proximity to him, our nearness to him, our closeness to him is going to be determined by the extent to which we share in the cup of his suffering. In other words, what? Servanthood is going to cost. You can't serve anyone without it costing you. Bear one another's burdens, the Bible tells us, right? How do we bear one another's burdens unless we're willing to have some of their burdens spill over and fall over onto us? Serving is always going to cost. Serving people will cost you time. Serving someone is going to inconvenience you. It's going to bring stress. Serving people will require changing of plans. It's going to require shifting your schedule around. But here at this church, every time, Every time Jesus calls you to serve someone, though it may be difficult, though it may cost, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to be closer to him. It's an invitation to get nearer to him. It's an invitation towards greatness as he sees it. 
The greatest of you will be your servant, he said. Quick application. Husbands in the room. I'm talking to myself just as much. Maybe you're thinking, I'm the leader in my home. Maybe you'd never say it this way, but you're thinking, I'm the greatest in my home. I lead my home. I make the decisions. I run the show in my house. But the text here just said, the greatest among you will be your servant. You may be reminding your wife all the time that you're the leader, but whether you're really the leader is measured by your serving, not by your talking. If you were to ask your kids, hey kids, who serves more in this house, mom or dad, what would they say? If you were to ask, hey kids, who serves you more? If you asked, do you see daddy serving mommy more or mommy serving daddy more? What would they say? I asked my kids and they said, well, this past year, mama served more because you had a stroke. Well, fair enough. (laughs) Husbands, are you out serving your wives? If you're not, she's the leader. She's the leader in your home. She's the greatest. Because Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. You may be saying, I'm the man, I'm the leader, but unless you're serving your wife more than she's serving you, Jesus is saying, you're doing leadership like the world does it. You're just lording it over. That's not how Jesus leads his church. And this applies in any other relationship dynamic among friends, in the workplace, in the church as well. Do you know who's the greatest in our church? People serving and kids and students. Just a little plug there for our kids and students' ministries. (laughs) So first, in the place of self-glory and self-preservation is a call to serve. Others-focused rather than self-focused. But next is a call to be served. To be served. And we desperately need this. A call to be served. Now, some of you are confused. Wait a minute. I thought you just said for us not to seek being served, but... To serve. Now you're saying Jesus is calling us to be served? Yes. Jesus is calling us to seek being served, not by people, but by him. Jesus is calling us to seek being served, not by other people, but by him. Look at the text. Matthew 20, verse 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we stop that verse 27, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And if that was the message of Christianity, it would not be good news. There would be no gospel. It would just be like any other religion. It would just be like any other philosophy, ideology, or self-help program that says, just be like this. And live like this. We don't need another religious leader, philosopher, or self-help guru telling us this is who you need to be and this is how you need to live. We all know how we should live. Intuitively, it's written upon our very conscience that we need to be a people that love and self-sacrifice in order to serve people. None of us look at selfish people that only think about themselves and think that's how we need to live. That's how life is meant to be lived, right? We all know how we should live deep down. So what's the problem? The problem is that we just don't do it. The problem is that we just can't do it. 
We just love ourselves too much. The problem is that we consider ourselves more significant than others. And so if all that Jesus said was, you need to be a servant and sacrificially serve like I did, it would only stand to condemn us because we could never fully obey him. And so what we so desperately need is not just someone saying, this is who you need to be and this is what you need to do. What we so desperately need is someone who can forgive our sins and ransom us from the guilt and death and the wrath of God that we have incurred for ourselves because we're not who we need to be and we don't do what we need to do. But make no mistake, Jesus did come with radical commands, he did. He does demand that we join him on the path to suffering and self-sacrifice to serve others, but he didn't just give us radical commands. He gave us a radical promise And what promise is that? Look at verse 28 again. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The radical promise that Jesus gives us, along with his radical commands, is this, that he's going to serve us, that he came to serve us. He's saying, this is the whole reason why I came, not to be served, but to serve. He promises that he's going to serve us so that we can be who we need to be so that we can do what we need to do. He commands radical things of us and then offers us help so that we can obey. He's promising us that he's going to serve us so that we can serve others. Now, don't miss this. This is the radical message of Christianity. The radical message of Christianity is not first and foremost serve Jesus by doing all these radical things for him. That's not a radical message. That's a very common message. It's the message of every other religion in the world that says, serve your God, do all these things. And then perhaps if you do enough, then there will be salvation for you. Instead, the radical message of Christianity is not first and foremost, serve Jesus by doing all these radical things for him, but first and foremost, be served by Jesus as he does radical things for you. Not do radical things to work yourself up to God, but the radical message is that God has done radical things to work his way down to you, including laying his life down as a ransom for you. When Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for you, he's saying whatever condition you think you were in, it was far worse. The word ransom is the Greek word lutron. It means to loosen. It means to unchain. It means to purchase a person out of captivity. Every other religion says you can do it. You're good enough. You have it within you to be good and to redeem yourself, right? But when Jesus says, I came to ransom you, he's telling us, no, you can't. You're not good enough. You don't have it within you. You can't ransom yourself. He's saying that we were in captivity, slaves to sin and death, absolutely unwilling and unable to obey him, to unchain ourselves with our good works. Our lives were forfeited. We had no life to give because our lives were already forfeited to divine justice. The wages of sin is death, God tells us. That's why Jesus' words are so beautiful here when he says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the only one in all the world who had a life of his own to give, a sinless life without spot 
without wrinkle, a life in no way due to God on account of any owing or obligation. But, but he laid it down anyways. And if we have in Jesus a God who is willing to lay down his life for us, do we not also have in him a God who is willing to help us and serve us wherever we need him? So church, what have you been doing? Have you been first and foremost seeking to serve Jesus? Or have you been seeking to be served by Jesus? Have you been serving Jesus? You're running around and you're sacrificing. You're doing this and you're doing that, working, laboring, and you're just exhausted. You're constantly walking around with a sinking feeling in your gut, always doubting, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Do you feel sometimes that no matter what you're doing for him, that no matter what you're giving to him, that no matter that you're serving him is just not enough? Well, here's the good news, church. He didn't come to be served by you. He didn't come to be served by you. He came to serve you. That's the radical message of Christianity. This is both the worst news and the best news in all the world. This is the worst news for people who feel morally superior and spiritually self-sufficient, people who feel like they're good enough and they have it within them to do a bunch of things for God and then negotiate with him and say, God, now you owe me. This is the worst news for people like that because Jesus is saying, no, I don't need you and I don't owe you. In fact, I don't need your service. You need my service. That's why becoming a Christian is such a humbling thing because you're saying, I need help. I need help. We're looking to Jesus and saying, I can't be what I'm supposed to be and I can't do what I'm supposed to do and I'm desperate and I need help. And Jesus says, good, that's why I came. That's why I came. Our God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives life and breath and everything. The news of the radical sufficiency of God is the worst news for people who view themselves as self-sufficient. But, but it's the best news. But it's the best news in all the world for people that say, I got nothing. I got nothing, Jesus. People that say, what can I offer him? What could I ever do for him? A God that who does not need from us is the God that we truly need. A God that does not need to be served by us, but instead offers to serve us. That's the greatest news in all the world for those of us who look at ourselves and all we can do is just beat our chest and say, mercy, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Charles Spurgeon says this, let it sink into your mind. He had nothing whatever to gain by it, right? Why did he come? He had nothing whatever to gain by it. Gain? What could the infinite God gain? Splendor? Behold the stars, far away they glitter beyond all mortal count. Servants, does he need servants? Behold angels in their squadrons, 20,000, even thousands of angels are the chariots of the Almighty. Honor, 
No, the trumpet of fame forever proclaims him king of kings and lord of lords. Who can add to the splendor of that diadem that makes sun and moon grow pale by comparison? Who can add to the riches or the wealth of him whom has all things at his disposal? He comes then not to be served, but to serve. I'd like for us to close with a few applications. When we have in Jesus, when we have in Jesus a God who doesn't demand that we first serve him, but in him we find the Savior who first offers to serve us, in what ways does that transform us? What does a truth like that produce in our lives? At least a couple of things. A truth like that produces first the humility of heart, humility of heart and joyful service. Because we've been ransomed, because we've been purchased, it produces humility. And because we've been served by Jesus, it produces a joyful service to others. First, it produces a humility of heart. A truth like this produces a humility of heart that says, I don't belong to myself. That's what it means that we have been ransomed, that we have been purchased, right? I don't belong to myself. I've been ransomed. I've been purchased. I belong to another. And so you say, for instance, my body, it's not mine. It's yours, Jesus. You ransomed me. You purchased me, mind, body, and soul. And so I don't get to do with it what I want. I don't get to define it the way that I want. It produces a humility that says my money isn't mine. I don't get to spend it wherever I want. We say, my marriage isn't mine. I don't get to end it whenever I want. We say, my time isn't mine, and my schedule and my plans are flexible. We say, God, interrupt me. Interrupt me anytime you want with whatever you want, because it's not mine. It's yours. Let me offer one more. It produces a humility that doesn't demand better treatment from the world than Jesus got. It produces a humility that doesn't demand better treatment from the world than Jesus got. Much of our anger and being offended in this world comes from an expectation that we have a right to be treated well, right? Why do we get angry? Why do we get so offended? Because we're saying we have a right to be treated well. But remember, what's at the very heart of our worldview? Church, Christian, what's at the very heart of all that you believe? At the very heart is a man who came to die for his enemies. The very heart isn't a man who showed up demanding to be treated well. The very heart of all that we believe is a man who came to die for his enemies. And as they were sinning against him, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not know, they do not know what they're doing. Peter said, remember when we were going through 1 Peter, he said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, right? Peter said, for to this you are called. For to this you are called. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And a truth like this not only produces humility of heart, but joyful service. We don't just begrudgingly obey. We don't just begrudgingly serve people saying, well, I guess I have to, right? But we joyfully serve people because that's how we were served. 
for the joy set before him, the Bible says. Jesus endured the cross. When we see Jesus not begrudgingly dying for us, but joyfully dying for us, that changes everything, right? Do you see Jesus begrudgingly dying for you or joyfully dying for you? That changes our mentality from I have to serve people to I get to serve people. As I've been trying to lose all this weight that I gained with all my comfort eating, after my stroke, during the quarantine, all the other things that makes life so uncomfortable and all I want to do is eat more fried chicken. Um, I borrowed a Peloton login and, and I took a treadmill class and this dude was trying to kill me, you know? <laughs> he kept telling me to increase my speed. He kept telling me to run, go, keep going, don't stop, right? And I'm about done with this dude. I'm about to turn this off and just surrender to a life of fatness, right? <laughs> but then he said something. He said something that changed everything. He said, turn up your speed. He said, keep going, don't stop. And then he said, you don't have to, you get to. You don't have to, you get to. And that changed everything for me because as, as I was thinking about it, especially in light of my stroke, I said, I could have very well faced the future of not being able to walk, let alone run, right? And then I began to see that my being able to run and feel pain and sweat was a privilege. I don't have to. I get to, right? And Jesus is saying, look, I gave my life as a ransom for you. And I'm serving you every day of your life with heartbeats. Do you feel that? That your every heartbeat is Jesus serving you. He's thinking about you. The Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Why is your heart beating right now? Because he's thinking about you. He's serving you. He's saying, I'm here to serve you with heartbeats, with breath, with the rising sun, and with the falling rain. I'm serving you by giving you the grace of time and energy and resources. And now what are you going to do with all the ways that I'm serving you? Spend it on yourself? Spend it on self-glory? Spend it on self-preservation? Church, Jesus is saying to you, I love you. And this is the reason why I came to serve you, to serve you all day long, every day of your life. And so go serve others. You don't have to, you get to. In light of all the ways that Jesus has served you, think about it. What are all the ways that Jesus has served you? In light of all the ways that Jesus has served you, he's saying now. Go serve others. You don't have to. You get to. Let's pray together. Father, what grace, what mercy that you sent your son. And if anybody had the right to just come and demand service and demand well treatment and demand worship, it was him, but he came in order not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for us. 
Father, let us never be able to get over that mercy. Let us never be able to get over that grace. And Father, let it fuel us. Let it fuel us, let it empower us, let it encourage us to serve all those that need to be served. Father, that world is filled with people that need you. This world is filled with people that need to be served by you and to see Jesus. And so as those who have been served by you, let us go serve others. And let us receive the calling as a great privilege and an honor. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.